really a great honor and delight um, to, uh, to learn with my teacher, Rabbi Avi Weiss, and always to be with you all here in our community, our virtual community. Our topic today um, has shifted a little bit from Imeshka Chech Yerushalayim to, um, to uh, some Hanukkah Torah. Some Hanukkah Torah. Um, you should have received this, the, the source sheet. If you did not, it's over there in the chat, and uh, AJ is going to post it again. Hanukkah teaching the fundamentals of covenant leadership and spirituality. Rabbi Avi Weiss, who many of you know, because he's been to VBM before and is uh, one of the most influential uh, Jews alive, was the founder of Yeshivat Chovavei Torah, where I, was, I had the great privilege of going to rabbinical school. Also the co-founder of Yeshivat Maharat, which as you know, uh, uh, pioneered um, uh, Orthodox women becoming rabbis. Um, the founding rabbi of the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, he, for many decades, led Amcha, an organization to uh, defend the Jewish people and, um, and stand up for the Jewish community, and has published many significant books and articles and beyond. But all of that is the bio you can just read anywhere. Rav Avi has been my teacher and mentor um, for, for uh, really almost my, my spiritual birth, I can almost say, um, and uh, is my most dearest Rebbe and mentor of what it means to be a mensch and what it means to be a teacher of Torah. Anything I have as a Jewish educator is thanks to him. So uh, friends, it's really uh, gonna be a delight to spend Hanukkah, to spend Hanukkah studying together and studying from one of the greats, the great, the, the great of our time, Rabbi Avi Weiss. <clears throat> Thank you, Shmuley. Thank you, Rabbi Shmuley. And you're also very, very fortunate to learn with, with Rav Shmuley, whom I consider today one of the great creative geniuses of, of our times. As a very young man, his future will only bring even more light to the world. And it's seldom that somebody who has that creative genius has the courage that Rav Shmuley has, and for me, what stands out most is that while he's global in his concerns for Am Yisrael and Kol Yoshevei Tebel, the Jewish people in the larger world, he's equally sensitive one-on-one, -on -one. and I'm sure you've seen it when everyone has a need, that's where Rav Shmuley is, and it's a great, great, great honor. I'll always feel close to you, Shmuley, to... It's a close, close connection. And it's the other way around. I have gained so much, so much from you, Rav Shmuel, and for many, many years to come. Normatively, I would spend a lot of time speaking to each of you individually, but we have only an hour. So what I've decided to do, Zoom is a different kind of experience, is I wanna share some thoughts related to Hanukkah, and I wanted to encourage you to take some notes. And after about 20 at most 30 minutes, we'll stop. And then I wanna open it up and, and hear what you feel. And what I'd like to talk about is how Hanukkah touches upon some of the most central fundamental aspects of what being Jewish is all about. And there is a thinker whom I've become very, very enamored with, the Sfat Emet, who's the third Gera Rebbe who died in 1905. And his thinking permeates what I have to share with you. And so there are several thoughts. The first relates to the concept of covenant. And I see within the very framework of the establishment of the holiday of Hanukkah, a teaching that is basic to the idea of Hanukkah. One of the most basic ideas in Judaism is the idea of covenant, of Brit. Brit is a contract. Normatively, a contract is a contract between two people. The Brit is a contract between the human being and God. And the basics of the Brit follows along these lines. God creates an incomplete, imperfect world. And God does so 
purposefully. Imagine this abducto absurdum argument. Imagine if everything were good. If God would have created the world with everything being good, nothing would be good as good is a relative term. There's only good because there's bad. Or if God had created a world which is perfect, it would be a world in which we would be unchallenged. There'd be little left for us to do. Or if the world was created so magnificently that we could only do what's right, that would mean that we would be bereft of our freedom of choice. And freedom of choice is central to our being human. Hence, the last word of the creation story, the last thing that God creates is Shabbat. And the last word in that creation of Shabbat, which we actually recite Friday nights on Kiddush, is the word La'asot. And then la'asot. La'asot means to do. Asa is a verb of creation. Often in the creation story, the Torah says, vayas elokim, and God did, God made, God created. And in the last creation, word, open your hearts now, God says to Adam and Eve, and in speaking to Adam and Eve, God is speaking to all of us until eternity. God says, I've created an imperfect and incomplete world, now la'asot. The God of Vaya'a says la'asot, now you do. And in partnership, God says, let's redeem the world. Let's perfect the world. Let's heal the world. A few weeks ago, I became part of the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine trial. And before the inoculation was administered today, I actually got the booster shot. I asked the doctors whether they'd permit me to say a prayer. And I said the prayer of which I understand, oh God, we bless you for being the healer of all humankind. You make your contribution. And then, oh God, you do wondrous things that's the same word in the liturgy in that blessing as appears at the end of the creation Genesis story. You've empowered people to partner with you, the marvels of medicine, of science, to find cures to terrible, terrible diseases. Shmuley, if we can take a look at this on our screen, on the screen, we have that first sentence. I'm not gonna be able to touch upon everything that I've written out here. But if you look at the first box, and God bless the seventh day and hallowed it because that in it he rested from all of his work, which God had created incompletely and imperfect, imperfectly, la sot that we should do. Now, Shmuley, if I can just face everyone, I wanna add one more piece to this. And the piece that I wanted to add is the following. We're in partnership with God, but how much responsibility does humankind, does humankind assume in this equation, in this contractual partnership? And here we're suggesting that the partnership runs very similarly to the way we raise our children. When a child, if one is blessed with a child, not everyone is so blessed, but when a child is born, I read somewhere that the being that is least able to help herself or himself at birth is a human being. And so at birth, the parent 
is fully in 100%. The child can help herself or himself very little. Maybe there's, of course, an instinctive partnership, the power to breathe, the lungs are operating, the hearts are operating, but the help is coming virtually all from the outside. As the child grows, it begins to shift. The child begins to assume more responsibility <clears throat> and the parent less. We reach the point of a bar mitzvah where we recite, parents recite, Baruch Shepetarani Meyom Shoshelzev, Shelzot. It's a powerful moment where parents let go and say, I trust you, my child, my bat mitzvah, my bar mitzvah. I trust you. You're assuming more responsibility and I am stepping back. So too the Jewish peoplehood, so too the larger world. When we were just born as a people, God did it all for us. As we mature as a people, we're expected to do more for ourselves. And so if we look at the Passover story, the Haggadah story, in the Haggadah, the name of Moses, of Moshe, is never mentioned. It's God, Anivalo Malach, Anivalo Saraf. God does it all. We were just being born. But by the time Purim rolls around a couple of thousand years later, if we look into the Megillah, God's name is not found in the Megillah. There is a real shift. We've assumed greater responsibility. And so if we can go to the screen again, I want to share with you a magnificent Sfat Emet. Look at what he says about the development of the holidays. He says, Hagimul Moadot Shenatan Lanu HaKadosh Baruchu we can make that just a bit larger, Shmuley. The three festivals which God has given to us, Hain Torah Shebechtav, they're the written Torah, Shemifarashim Torah, that are explicit in the Torah. Now I'm up to the second line, if we can point to the end of that line. The Hain, second line in the Hebrew, in the English, the third line, they bear witness that the blessed Holy One has chosen Israel. In other words, when we think about the holiday of Passover, well, that's the holiday where God redeemed us. The holiday of Shavuot historically was the time when God gave us the Torah. Sukkot, when in the desert, God protected us. They bear witness that the blessed Holy One has chosen Israel. And now look at that last paragraph. But Hanukkah and Purim, these are rabbinical holidays, are special times that Israel merited by their own deeds. These are called oral law. And the Hebrew in bold is, they are testimony that Israel chose the blessed Holy One. And if I could face everyone, for me, this is a remarkable statement. Often when we speak, when we're spoken of as the chosen people, we become understandably very defensive. Indeed, with all my heart, I believe we're not the only ones who were chosen. Humankind was chosen. In the Torah, the human being is given the image of God. The lower animal world may have a soulfulness, but the Tzelem Elohim is reserved for the human being. We are one of those who are chosen. Others have been chosen, but God chooses us. And the Sfat Emmet writes, but it's not only God who chooses us, it's reciprocal. With time, as we mature, and as we become more responsible, we assume greater responsibility, and we choose God. That is an extraordinarily courageous statement.
I think for many, many Jews in the more fundamental world, that would be an outrageous thought. Judaism is about God choosing us. And yet this great Rebbe, the third Rebbe of the Gera Hasidim says, one moment, it's not only that God chose us, we every day are choosing God. We assume more responsibility, God steps back. And I wanna add, and we can perhaps expand on this in our question and answer period. When I say that God steps back, that doesn't mean that God disappears. It's like a parent stepping back. Often in love, it's easier to hold on than to let go. When we let go of our children, God is still present. When we let go of our children, we are, we are still present. What Rabbi Milton Steinberg calls that in parenthood, we should be embracing our children, but embrace with open arms. So when one says, when I say that with the maturity of the Jewish people covenantly, we do more and God is less felt because God is less openly felt. That doesn't mean that God is less present. God is, is more present. And so Hanukkah, the very establishment of Hanukkah, speaks to this covenantal concept. And here I want to move to a second fundamental idea of Hanukkah, which deals with why the first candle. We're moving from the holiday of Hanukkah so that you see this in, in a picture. In structuring a shiur, one should be able to draw it. We're moving from the broad idea of how the holiday developed into a more specific idea related to the candles of Hanukkah and specifically the first, the first candle. There is a classic question in rabbinic literature. If there was enough oil for the first day, why should the first day be a miracle? If it lasted eight, the miracle really extended from day two through day eight. As a consequence, there should really be only seven nights of Hanukkah. Why are there eight nights of Hanukkah? Again, if it was enough for the first day, so the first day is not a miracle. So why is that day part of the miracle? Now, open your hearts for a moment. I'd like to suggest the following, that the first candle teaches a fundamental message about leadership. Because the miracle of the first day is that the Maccabean, the Maccabees did not give up. They knew they needed pure oil for eight days until the oil would be retrieved. And they knew they couldn't get it for eight days. So one wonders why light for one day? There wouldn't be enough for eight days. But the miracle of the first day is that they lit the candle. Unsure of whether they would succeed or not, they lit, they lit the fire. And that for me is a central message of leadership. All the gurus in leadership will tell, tell us that the definition of leadership is change. Leadership is change. Leadership is identifying a need and responding to that need. So your rabbi, Rabbi Shmuel Yankalovich, sees a need, a need in the environment, a need to make sure that kashrut is not only external, but it's internal, that people working in kashrut restaurants and slaughterhouses that the need that you're treated properly, saw that need and demanded a change and lights the fire. And built into change is that people resist change. And as a consequence, the initiators, the founders are outsiders. For me, the real leader is a person who stands up for a cause, not because it's popular, but because it 
is right. If we can go to the screen and we kind of summarize it on the screen, we PowerPoint these steps. It's a little further down, Shmuel, we're in the second part. In the second step, one, in this message of leadership, we, it's number two, Shmuel, so it's more to your left, yes. So we identify a need and the leader responds to the need demanding change, but the change is resisted. And because the change is resisted, the initiators are in fact, are in fact outsiders. And let's think about our change makers, Abraham. So the Midrash, the Breshit Rabbah, which is a rabbinic text from the fourth and the fifth century, it tells us that Abraham is called the Hebrew, Ha'ivri, the Hebrew. And Rabbi Yehuda says, why is he called the Hebrew? Because Hebrew in Hebrew is Aver, which means the side. And so they say, the whole world was on one side of the river and Abraham stood alone on the other side. He saw the need in a world that was godless to bring the monoistic order into the world. He saw the need, he demanded the change, but there was great resistance and he was an outsider. Abraham the Hebrew means, Hebrew means the outsider, the Jew, the first Jew who was the outsider. Or think about Moses and Aaron who are told to Pharaoh, they're told, let my people go. And finally, after hearing that dictum from God, they come to Egypt, they convince the people and the people are going along with them. And suddenly the text in Exodus chapter five says, and afterwards Moshe and Aaron came and the same rabbis, Rashi, who lived in the 11th century, he's quoting the Shemot Rabbah, which is a little bit later than Breshit Rabbah, but he quotes this, Rashi, this text, where the text asks, but I thought Moses was marching with the elders and he's marching alone, but the elders, they slipped away one by one from, remote, from behind Moses and Aaron until every one of them had slipped away before they arrived at the palace because they were afraid to go there. If I could just face everyone just for a moment, this is what leadership is all about. I really identify with that cause. Marching for Soviet Jewry and in those days, some of you may remember that movement, but often the Glenn Richters and the Jacob Birnbaums, the father and the tzaddik of the movement would turn around, uh-oh, we're all alone. The student struggle for Soviet Jewry was the first national Soviet Jewry organization. It was, it was organized and founded seven years before the Federated Community created the National Conference on, on Soviet Jewry. And often in the map march, the Yaakovs and the Glens of this world would turn around and say, wait a minute, we're here alone. But that's the key. The key is that sometimes you have to be the lone person who lights that first candle. Imagine the Maccabees lighting that candle and everyone looking at them and saying, you're fools, why are you lighting the candles? The Maccabees say, we have a need, there's no pure oil, we must light it. And the people say, it's ridiculous. You're never gonna be able to succeed. You won't find enough light for eight days. What's the sense in starting? What's the purpose? in this fall, as the founding heroes of the Soviet Jury movement have told me that when they started the movement, people said, this is some kind of joke. How are you going to influence the Soviet Union, the strongest empire in the world? But they lit the fire and they kept walking. It's a beautiful Svatemet where the Svatemet, if we can go back to the screen, 
is on the portion where God says to Abraham, that lone voice who is speaking out in the name of God. And look at what the Gera Rebbe says. God says to Abraham, Lech Lecha, go. And maybe Abraham would turn to God and say, go, where am I gonna go? I'm all alone. They're gonna push me down. And the Gera Rebbe says, the human being is called a walker. Shadam nikram alech. A human being must always go from one rung to another. Go from your land, lech lecha, God says. A person should always keep walking to that which I will show you. Respond to the need. Always some new attainment. This is why the person is called a walker. Lachen nikra. Adam Mehalech, if I could see everyone. What a beautiful, beautiful Svat Emet. I was so moved by this Svat Emet. I recently started composing again. I composed songs when I was younger. I wrote this little song. And the Lord said, keep on going, lech lecha, lech And then, Adam tzarech liyot mehalech, Adam tzarech liyot mehalech, Shet tzarech Adam tawa wamid lelech, and this year ago, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, at our open service, I was teaching this song and saying that in life, we shouldn't be afraid to take chances. That's leadership. Sometimes it means being alone. And we started singing it in English. Walking, walking higher and higher. And suddenly all the people stood up. Many of the people were in synagogue for the first time in their lives. And they started walking in their places, lifting their hands. Walking, walking higher and higher. That's the power of the first night. Now I want to say something, maybe radical, but I'm looking for your reactions in just a few moments when I'm through. I believe that virtually all change does not come from the inside. It comes from the mainstream. Change by definition begins on the fringe. It doesn't begin in the mainstream because when you're in the mainstream, let me use the term establishment, it's hard to become involved in risky endeavors because you can't afford to fail. And when you're on the inside too, there is red tape, tape bureaucracy, you're weighted down. And often it's so top office heavy that one becomes disconnected with the Amcha. And that's why most movements begin from the fringe. Think about the Soviet jury movement. Now, tomorrow's a very big day. Tomorrow is the 50th anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the first Leningrad trial any of you remember that by hands? That was the trial when Yosef Mendelevich and Edwas Kuznetsov and Silva Zalmanson and Mark Dimschitz, they were on trial. Their hope was to leave the Soviet Union and they tried to steal a plane. They weren't hijacking the plane. They brought, they brought every seat on that 12-seater and Mark Dimschitz was a pilot. They were going to steal it and fly it out. And as they were walking to the plane and their goal was to 
They wanted to make noise so that the world would be alerted and would cry out for Soviet jury. They saw the KGB was following and they nonetheless went through with it. And Dimshitz and Kuznetsov were sentenced to death. Mendelevich was sentenced to 15 years. Could you imagine death, two death sentence? That's even harsh. That's very harsh by, by Soviet standards. I once said to Yosef Mendelevich after he was freed, I had the honor to be with Yosef in Geneva 30 years ago in 1985, 35 years ago, we were arrested together protesting at the first Gorbachev Reagan summit. I said, Yosef, even if you would have gotten that plane up in the heavens, they would have shot you out of the sky. And he looked at me and he said, Avi, we were ready for that. We were ready for that. And it reminded me of something the great Dr. Martin Luther King once said. He said, if there's nothing in this world that you're ready to die for, you're not living. If, you, if there's nothing in this world that you're ready to die for, you're not living. And mind you, Judaism is a religion of choose life, choose life. But there are times where the great heroes are ready to go, go to the, to the extreme. And Mendelevich was a lone voice. Zalmanson was a lone voice. Dimshitz was a lone voice. And when they were sentenced to death in long terms, some of you may remember, hundreds of thousands of Jews spilled into the streets. That was the clarion call. The Six-Day War two years earlier had given us pride, but there wasn't much left for us to do. The Israelis did that on their own. That pride translated into action two years later was three years later at the Leningrad trial. Let's take a look at the screen for the paragraph, which is from my book, Open Up the Iron Door, a memoir on the Soviet jury movement where I write, where I write the following. It's right there, good. The establishment, the organized community is rarely the first to introduce change. This is because change involves taking risks and the establishment cannot afford to fail. Furthermore, the establishment is slow moving, mired in red tape and bureaucracy, weighted down by process and committee meetings, often losing touch with the Amcha, the very people they are serving. This is why change most often begins from leaders who are not encumbered by establishment constraints. If I can face everyone for a moment. So I am arguing that all of the Hanukkah candles are not just candles, they're symbols of something much deeper. Paul Tillich says there's a difference between a sign and a symbol. A sign is a shmata on a piece of cloth. A symbol goes beyond that piece of cloth. It symbolizes something deeper. That first candle symbolizes the founders who make the call for change. And tomorrow we're gonna to have a piece, myself and Glenn Richter in Tablet, where we call the Leningrad trial. That was the spark. That was the spark that ignited what perhaps was the greatest accomplishment of American Jewry. And that is the massive, massive Soviet Jewry movement. But I wanna quickly add that leadership is not only lighting the fire, but leadership is navigating the resistance and bringing everyone along. Had the Soviet jury movement remained the movement just of the student struggle for Soviet jury, of the first candle, it would have not succeeded. In the end, it needed the success, literally, of everyone, everyone's involvement. And as an activist 50 years back, as one who had many arguments with the establishment, who was anti-establishment then, these days when I look back, I'm, I'm non-establishment. I'm not anti-establishment. I recognize without the establishment, without Israel, could 200,000 people come to Washington for that big rally in 1987? Impossible. So the goal of the leader is to light that first candle, 
try to inspire the masses to become involved and then step back, make room for the second candle, make room for the third candle. That's what it's about. When I look at your great rabbi, Rabbi Shmuley Hertzfeld, you know, Shmuley, I'm thinking of the story, I must have shared it with you. When I left St. Louis, Mr. Saul Mirowitz came up to me, I was there for a year and he said to me, Rabbi, I wanna bless you, you should have many enemies. I said, Saul, you're my friend. This is my breakfast farewell. Why are you blessing me that I should have enemies? He said, I mean, this is a blessing because in life, if you have no enemies, it means you haven't done anything. If you've got enemies, it means you've done something. What did the Baal Shem Tov say? A rabbi who is loved by everyone is not a rabbi. A rabbi who's hated by everybody is not a mensch. So, by the way, when I became Jonathan Pollard's rabbi, who was just a freed, so I used to travel through St. Louis to Marion, Illinois. Jonathan was in the toughest prison in Southern Illinois. And I decided to see Saul, my friend who gave me that blessing 20 years early. And I said, Saul, I want you to know I have fulfilled your blessing 100%. I have many enemies. As Rabbi Shmuel Yankelovitz has many enemies. Should wear it like a badge of honor. Elijah the prophet was called an Ocher Yisrael, a troublemaker. If someone calls you a troublemaker, take it all. The power of the first candle. Because when there's a first candle, there wasn't a second candle. You couldn't even call the first the first. It was candle one. Without a second, it's not the first. It was one, it was alone. It was Grenin Berger of the Ethiopian Jewry movement all alone. I remember a network convention in Toronto back in the late 70s when a very high official from Israel spoke about, was asked about the falashas, not a nice word about Ethiopian Jews. And this person responded, ah, falashas, malashas. It hurts me to tell you this. Israel was not on board in the beginning for all kinds of reasons. I can think of the 60s, the anti-war movement. That certainly in the beginning was a lonely movement. Dr. Martin Luther King, my Rebbe in activism, the civil rights movement, when he went down south and he wrote a letter to his brother and sister clergy, he wasn't only writing to his black brothers and sisters, he was writing to his white brothers and sisters who said, Brother Martin, you're a troublemaker, go home. That's the power. The people who make the difference are the first candle, are that candle one. And a third and final thought, and then in about seven minutes, I'm opening it up and we'll have 15 minutes left for your comments. And we're moving from this general discussion of Hanukkah and offered an explanation why the very coming into being of Hanukkah speaks to the idea of covenant because Hanukkah is not a holiday that God gave us. We gave the holiday, if you will, to God. We gave the holiday in covenant, in partnership. We're assuming greater responsibility. Then we narrowed it to the first candle, which is the candle which speaks to the power of that individual who sees the need and responds to the need, not because it is then popular, but it is right and opens the doors for the masses to become involved. And now the third and final thought to speak about all of the lights of Hanukkah. When we talk about the lights of Hanukkah, Hanukkah is normally understood that there was a temple and the lights represent the lighting of the candelabra in the temple. Now open your hearts. In Hasidic literature, again, symbols, symbols. These are not just external simple ideas. They're rituals which speak much, much more broadly and they speak in an all-encompassing way. In Hasidic thought, every human being has the power to build her or his own table. Bilvavi mishkan evner. 
every human being can become a temple. And the Svatimet says, on Chanukah, almost like we search for the chametz, but we're not searching for the chametz like on Passover. We take a candle and we're searching within ourselves to find our inner goodness, to find our inner godliness, to light the light, to emanate and bring that light, that light to the world. If I could take a look at it in the Sfat Emet, what does the Sfat Emet say? He says, There it is in that box. It is written, he quotes from the sentence in Proverbs, a lamp candle of the Lord is the soul of the human searching out all our inner chambers. Could you imagine? A little diff bit different than what we said, but very similar. The soul is the candle. The Talmud notes that searching requires a candle. And the candle, the soul is searching. This means that there's a certain pure place within each of us. It's hidden, but it is there. If I could face everyone, it's a marvelous, marvelous concept. You know, for many, many decades, I was involved in the fight against anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism is rampant. This past Thursday was the one year anniversary of the attack in Jersey City. Do you remember? A week later, the attack in Muncie. And a year before, Poway, San Diego, and Pittsburgh. And of course, of course, New Zealand, and Kenya, and the Sikhs, and faith communities attacked, religions attacked, only because of people attacked because of their their beliefs. And we have a responsibility to stand up against anti-Semitism. And I take second place to no one in my career for fighting that fight. But I want to tell you something from the bottom of my heart. While anti-Semitism is too rampant and you can't bow to the anti-Semite, got to be strong. It is not our key challenge. It's not the body of our people that is in danger as much as our souls. And a soul without a body, it is true, cannot exist in this world, but a body without a soul is a body without purpose, without meaning, without, without direction. And that is why more than ever, Hanukkah is not only a celebration of the physical military victory over the Maccabean, but it's a celebration of the lights, what the light represents, the spot and that concept, the light of searching with our souls for our inner goodness and inner godliness. It may be hidden, but God doesn't make junk. We all have a godliness in us. We only have to light the fire, if I can go to the text, Shmuel, for a moment. And the text there I offer again, the, a piece from my book, Spiritual Activism. Well, first let's take a look at C. In C, yes, we say on Chanukah, we thank you for the miracles and for the wars. You delivered the mighty into the hands of the weak, many into the hands of the few. But the prayer that I think is even more important is, Hanero talalu anumadlikin, these lights we candle. All eight days of Hanukkah, these lights are celebrated. And you could see in being the activists grounded exclusively in physical defense, demonstrations, rallies, protests, political lobbying, doesn't understand the true nature, essence, and higher person of activism. If I am a Jew only to fight anti-Semitism, that is negative Judaism. Negative Judaism will not endure. If, however, I am a Jew because I appreciate the Sabbath, I treasure the Jewish laws of business ethics and all the laws and rituals that ennoble the life of the Jew, and I devote time to reading Jewish books and Torah study 
And indeed, I learned with Rabbi Shmuel Yankelevitz, I set a time study for the Beit Midrash. That is positive Judaism. Positive Judaism endures. If I could face everyone, Shmuley, that's that third message, the lights. It's not only the fire coming from the gun, but it's the light. It's the light of the letters of the spirit of the Torah, the spirit of the poetry of, of Amichai, the spirit of the scientists, the spirit, the spirit of the, the biologists, the geologists, the environmentalists. That's that inner, inner spirit. And I know that many of the few reports say that Jews today are not seeking are godless, I disagree. I think, let me talk about the Jewish people. I think Jews are searching. That's why we're all here, searching for God, searching for spirituality, searching for meaning, searching for purpose, searching for Judaism that's traditional, but fluid, open, but with parameters, we're searching. It's right beneath the surface sometimes. That's why we need the Shmulis and the Rabbi Stephen Exels of the world to just kind of scrape the surface again to light the fire. It's there. So those are the three messages I wanted to leave you. On the broader scale, Hanukkah, the very holiday, it concerns itself with the covenantal development of our assuming more responsibility as in Hanukkah, that's a holiday where we choose God, just as in contemporary history, there's the Israeli Day of Independence. We're choosing to frame that holiday. Israel is an expression, I believe, of God from the background watching, but we have to be more and more involved in redemption. Narrowing it, that first candle, why is that the miracle? That's the miracle of the ones who stand often alone and light the fire. That's real leadership. Leadership is change, but then parking the ego at the door and stepping back and making sure that other candles are lit independently in their own way. And the third message is all of the lights, not only the outer lights, the fire of the Jewish defense, but as the Svatimet said, it's the light of the soul searching our inner depths to find the goodness and the godliness emanating outward to bring light to the world. Or as the psalmist says, through your light, may we give light to the world. Blessings. And now I want to stop. I have spoken much too long. But I fear that had we go, gone through this, well, we still have 10, 12 minutes. Yeah, good. We're going to take questions. Um, let's take a few questions at once, if we can. Don't forget to unmute yourself. Yes, hi, uh, Phil. And hi, uh, Hannah. Phil and, and then Hannah. You're still muted, Phil. There you go. Looking to unmute myself. I was in a different screen. So I, I, have, a, I have a question. Um, I wrote it down at the very beginning of your talk and, and in, in, in light of the rest of your talk, it's not as, in, in itself isn't as relevant as, I, as, as you developed your talk. But, you know, you started off by saying, you know, if, if the world weren't incomplete, and I think this is your exact language, we would be bereft of our freedom of choice central to our being human. And then, then you drashed on the word la asot. So I've often thought about this issue of, uh, I, I hope I don't go on too long, but the issue of freedom of, freedom, uh, you know, freedom of the will, uh, it seems to me to be a two-sided thing. I mean, because we assume men and women have freedom of the will, we've had to face, not just the Jews, enormous catastrophes. So I think to myself sometimes, maybe it'd be okay to give up freedom of the will in order to avoid all these catastrophes. So, so freedom of the will seems to me to be a two, very two-sided coin. And, and, in, and I wonder if you might be able to comment on that. Um, it, comment on that, like free, you know, we, we, we have freedom of the will and your whole talk was really about exercising freedom of the will, but it leads to terrible disasters and not just for Thank the Jews. 
Awesome, great question, Phil. So Rabab, if you wanna make a note of that, I wanna get a few more voices in the room. Uh, Hannah? So uh, my question is, um, I heard recently um, a rabbi talking about that we say that Hanukkah is a minor holiday compared to the other holiday. Um, and I don't know why it's that, but the comment was sort of made what would happen if the Maccabees didn't win? Would Judaism, would the world in general look like it does today without that win and without that would consider the miracle of the Maccabees overpowering over um, the um, Greeks at the time? And um, because we wouldn't know Judaism the way it is today, the rabbinic Judaism. Uh, Christianity wouldn't have been um, by and large formed. And so there is lots of things that wouldn't happen. Your comment on that. Great, Hannah. Thank you so much. Can we hear from someone else? Don't forget to unmute yourself. We'll be patient. <laughs> Let's take one more voice. I, I have a question. Great. Thank you. I, I so, so, so appreciated hearing your, your words. I was really moved by them. So you said you. in life, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes. Yeah. In life, if you have no enemies, it means you haven't done anything. Mm -hmm. How do you find the courage to have enemies, even if you have a really strong conviction and sense of some, some change you really want to see happen? Mm -hmm. okay. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll um, just uh, some quick responses to... to to your wonderful questions. And, and thank you, Phil and Hannah and Diana, correct? Correct. Thank you so much. Um, in terms of freedom of will, if I could face everyone, Shmuley, I'd be so appreciative. <clears throat> I, I'd love to come back and talk a little bit about that. But for me, freedom of will is, is intrinsic. My theology is it's, it's intrinsic to our being human on the most basic level to our physicality. If we had no freedom, freedom of will, we'd have no physicality because physicality means that by definition, what we enjoy physically, we also may not enjoy. And my own sense is that the Garden of Eden story is really a story of the consequences of human nature where Adam and Eve say, we reject the Garden of Eden. We reject the Garden of Eden because it's a society where they fundamentally had no choice as to the question of the choice of eating from the tree. Well, what they were saying is we want a world of good and evil. That's why it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We don't want a world of good and good, better and best. But that's a question that, Phil, that requires much, much more exploration. And, and Hannah, Hanukkah for me is a major holiday for all the reasons that you beautifully laid out. It's a holiday that opened the doors to rabbinic Judaism, to other faith communities that have contributed. So I, there I, I, you know, it, they may say it's minor because it's not God given, but my perspective is that it's given by us as God commands us means that it's on, it's on that level. And uh, Diana, uh, how do you find the courage you you're, I think that's a question that, Shmuley, why don't you answer that question? You have much more courage than I do. How do you find the courage, Shmuley? Boy, is that far from true, uh, that you would turn that over to me. Um, yes. I, I, just, I just find um, in, in striving to live with a little bit of courage that it would be much more miserable to live with my conscience of unchallenging than it would be to live with the detractors and pain that comes with choosing the easy path. So that's on a personal level. 
um, just the power of listening to conscience and honoring that, that I believe a lot of suffering emerges from not living by our purpose. So that's the personal level. The second is just my read of Jewish history. We're never alone. When, we're, when we are taking a stand, we're marching with Mar Moshe Rabbeinu. We're with Yosef. We're, we're with the builders of Eretz Yisrael. We are with every Jew in history who's taken a stand. I'm with Reb Avi's in, in the streets of Phoenix with me. I feel it. And so I feel when we take a stand, we, we uh, on a physical level, we may be alone, but on a spiritual level, the solidarity uh, from an angelic solidarity, beautiful. our ancestors' solidarity, that we're never alone. It's a beautiful answer, Shmuley. And Natan Sharansky just published a book called Never Alone. And he talks about how when he was in the gulag, they told him he was alone, but he never felt alone and that's that's beautifully said and i just want to close with a, with a blessing for everyone Shmuley, because i know that our time is is almost up and that is i become an avid um, chassid of dr victor frankel who says that what pushes people to do what we do is that we all seek meaning and a lot of his writing is very esoteric but he basically says Meaning comes not only in good times, not only in the good times, but in the bad times, not only in euphoric moments of celebrations, but even in suffering, even in sickness, even in death, even in the greatest of challenges. And that too is the message of Hanukkah, stop the average person in the street and ask them where light comes from. They'll say what they'll say, but in Judaism, where does light come from? We're told right in the beginning of Genesis that the world was dark, the Choshech al home, and God says to the darkness, let there be light. Let there be light. The 25th word of the Torah, the Hasidic literature, like the 25th day of Kislev, let there be light. And the light pushes away the darkness. And this is the deepest story of Hanukkah in Jewish history and world history. It was dark in those days, but they lit the light. That's why it's a holiday that I think is so attractive beyond the Jewish community. And I dare say that tomorrow, as I pointed out, is the Leningrad trial. That was a very dark time, Shmuel. I encourage you to read the piece in tablet, very dark. But uh, Yosef, and his comrades, they, they lit the light. And a beautiful story. After Jersey City, we paid a shiva visit about a year ago, and we visited Satma Hasidim, believe it or not, real detractors, but a visit we visited. And I met there a man, Chaim Deutsch. He was saved and told us that he was a relative of the owner. He didn't know the store well. So when the attackers came, he tried to get out the back, but he didn't know where the back exit was, and he was helped by a man, Miguel Rodriguez, who comes from Ecuador, who had been working there for a year. Miguel shows him out, and by the time he goes out, every second could be the difference between life and death, Miguel was killed on the spot. So we went, I went to, we went to the funeral of Miguel, met his wife, Martha, who doesn't speak English, and met his daughter, Amy, 11 years old, who speaks English. And I left my cell number with Amy. A week later, I get a call. Rabbi, it's Amy. I said, Amy, are you okay? And she says, Rabbi, I heard your community was attacked. And she was in fact speaking about, because uh, a week after Jersey City was the attack in, in Muncie. She said to me, Rabbi, are you okay? Are you okay? What a story. And Amy became to me like a Hanukkah candle, like a Hanukkah light. A little girl, 11 years old, young woman. She was broken, the loss of her father. And look what she's doing. She's more worried about my welfare, the welfare of the Jewish community. In fact, Thursday night, we had a memorial service, myself and their pastors and family from Ecuador. That's, that too is a message of Hanukkah. And I wanna bless everyone, whatever the darkness, whatever the COVID, we've gotta come out of COVID even stronger than ever. One of my favorite 
favorite Rebbe's is Leonard Cohen. And he once wrote, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And Shmuley, you've seen a lot of cracks in the world. It's your time, Shmuley. It's not my time, it's your time. And you just, through the cracks, you bring more light. You see the cracks, not as a time to give up, but as an opportunity to reach higher and higher, as the Sfatem had said, Adam tzarich we've got to keep walking, 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 higher and higher. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Shmuel. It means so much to me and to all of you. I hope we have a chance to meet one-on-one and just all of my blessings. Chagurim Sameach. Thank you so much, Rav Avi. Friends, what a great opportunity in the middle of Hanukkah and right in smack in the middle to learn from a bridge builder, an organizational builder, an activist, a first-rate Torah educator, pastor, activist, author, and, uh, and, and my Rebbe, Rav Avi. Thank you so much. Friends, let's keep learning. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Avi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for your for your kind words and thank you for it's a great question. Great question. Often, often the most important people in the Bible are the anonymous people. As my father would say, Unanun. They're the most important. And the miners, like the minor Hanukkah. And often the people we think are the minor, they're the major, they're the most important. Friends, uh, if, you're, uh, if you're a VBM member, I'm giving a Hanukkah class tomorrow. And for everyone, uh, we have, we're learning with Rabbi Exler next Monday. Let's not just receive the light tonight, let's share our light with others. Hanukkah Thank you. God bless you, all my love. Blessings and love. Shalom, shalom.